Well, that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> Very good, wasn't she? It's, it's, look, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Norman Swan to Mulaney. Uh, Norman is originally from Glasgow. He did his medical training at Aberdeen University, eventually going on to specialise in paediatrics. His emigration to Australia in the early 80s, however, saw him move into radio and television broadcasting, mainly with the ABC, and in this role through a series of programs, including Life Matters and The Health Report, which he uh, has produced and presented since its inception in 1985, also 7.30, Catalyst, Quantum, Four Corners, and The Corona Cast. He has been given the label of Australia's most trusted doctor. Well, that's, that's what Hachette says about me. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly enough, for all those in our audience who are lovers of Radio National, and I know there are a few in the room here, Norman is not simply a broadcaster. He was the station's general manager for three years from 1990, during which time it saw a major revitalization, bringing on board such luminaries as Philip Adams and Geraldine Doog, amongst others. We have a lot to thank him for. Um, he is more recently the author of two books, uh, so You Think You Know What's Good For You, and the one which we're here to discuss tonight, So You Want To Live Younger Longer. Please welcome Norman Swan to Mulaney. Now, before, before we begin talking about the book, I would, if you indulge us, I'd like to talk a little bit about you. Sure. Okay. Um, I heard you, you know, speaking- we broadcasters are narcissists, so just go for it. <laughs> I heard you speaking to Sarah Konofsky a year or so ago about parts of your childhood, and you told her about growing up in what you described as genteel, low-income, middle-class family in Glasgow. How did a Jewish family end up in Glasgow in the first place? Um, well, they ended up, um, as did many Jews in Australia, they, they, they started off their journey after pogroms in Russia, um, in my case, in Ukraine. Um, my part of my family came from Odessa. That and magical city. That magical city, which I actually visited in November 2019, uh, almost a search for roots. It was a fascinating trip, probably no time to talk about it now, but which I've written up actually for, uh, you can find it on ABC Digital, the um, ABC Online. But um, so they came from Ukraine and various parts and Lithuania and so on. And they were escaping persecution and death, really. And that's where a, there was a huge migration out of um, what was called the Pale of Settlement, which was just the part of the only part of Russia that Jews were allowed to live. And they... We're talking like kind of late 1800s? Well, so? my great-grandfather came out probably... Uh, one of my great-grandfathers, he came out 1880, but that was unusual. Most arrived after 1905. There was a bad wave of pogroms yeah. in 1905. Now, they're all going to New York. They're all heading for New York. That's where they wanted to be. Um, but, and they got off, the, they were put off the boat in Greenock, the port of Glasgow. And I still haven't been able to, never been able to find out how long it took them to tweak to the fact that people were going, and they weren't uh, American. Um, <laughs> and they went to live in the Gorbals. I will tell you one interesting, well, actually, my great grandfather knew that it wasn't America, and he went to America, didn't like it, and came back. Um, but. So they, they ended up in the Gorbals, which was one of the worst slums in Western Europe. And we might come back to the stories of the Gorbals later, but the, they, they landed in the Gorbals. So one of the interesting things that happened in, on the Odessa trip, I went with three or four friends, 
one of whom his family also came from Odessa. And the, with the guide we had, there's no way you were going to find the house because you had waves of migration, you had the Russian Civil War, you had the Holocaust, just no way you were going to find that out. But she took a basic history and she said, oh, I think I know where they would have come from. And she took us to this uh, area on the, just on the edge of the CBD. And it was amazing. And I've shown people pictures of that, not telling them where it was. And I said, where do you think this is? And they said, oh, it's Glasgow. <laughs> and it looks like the Gorbals. And so these people escaped persecution. Probably their life savings went on a boat ticket to New York, get off in Glasgow, and they ended up where they started. Now, if we're going to go into the kind of nuances of uh, the British class system, which, you know, please let's not do too much. I came from, um, uh, I was born in Paisley. I'm two years older than you, so uh, just down the road from where Paisley's you are. just up. down the road from where I grew up, yeah. And uh, I came from uh, upper middle class, west coast of Scotland um, family, right? So, but uh, to me, the Gorbals was a, a terrifying place. Um, oh, it, it was. Um, I used to go to quite a lot because I was obsessed with the theatre when I was younger, and uh, that was my journey. So Fiona was talking about wanting to be a writer, I wanted to be an actor, and I was obsessed with the theatre. And the, the, the Glasgow Citizens Theatre was in the middle of the Gorbals, and it was. It was a terrifying place. I mean, Jews in Glasgow kind of escaped the class system. They were, they were outside everything, really. Um, part of it, but outside of it as well. So hard to slot Jews into the class system, maybe sort of eventually becoming middle class, having started poor. Right. I mean, my memory of the Gorbals was actually them being knocked down. You know, we, we would go into Glasgow for some reason or other, and the wrecking balls were at work. You know, I've got a, a lovely quote here from uh, Sol Bellow about them, you know, uh, the, the great metal wrecking balls swinging at the walls, passing easily through brick and entering the rooms, L the lazy weight browsing on kitchens and parlors. You know, I, and I remember that, seeing you could see these four or five-story tenements just being yes. knocked apart. So I talk, so the books are part memoir, and I do talk about this in this book, um, because Glaswegians have a poor life expectancy. The, the life, we talk about the life expectancy gap in Australia between uh, First Nations people and non-Indigenous Australians. It's about 11 years, which is outrageous and it's terrible. Uh, when I was growing up, it was 25 years in Glasgow. That was the life expectancy gap. It's less than that now. It's about 13 years. Um, but amongst the highest coronary heart disease rates in the world, and people say, oh, it's, well, you know, what's the reason for it? And people say it's fried Mars bars. <laughs> I've yet to see a fried Mars bar, but certainly growing up, there was fried haggis, fried suet, um, fried black pudding, fried white pudding. Um, uh, with potatoes on the side. With chips on, you know, wash your mouth on, out, with chips, chips on, on the side. side. And um, so they said, what's well, the diet? It's the smoking, it's a drink. But when you actually compare Glasgow to, say, Liverpool, parts of Manchester, parts of Edinburgh and so on, it's not that different socioeconomically or diet or smoking. So, but they still have really bad um, outcomes. <clears throat> and the phenomenon is known as the Glasgow effect. And it exactly relates to what you're talking about. So these were the worst slums in Europe. However, they were just on the border of the southern border of the River Clyde and just across the water, as we would say, from the city. So you, people would walk to their work. There were coherent communities. People knew each other. The kids played in the back 
you know, in the back of the tenement blocks together in the puddles and the dirt and what have you. But with all the best intentions, they knocked down these slums, as you graphically described, and people were moved. And in Scotland, what we called them were housing schemes, areas of government housing, which were distant, with poor transport links, maybe a shop, definitely a pub, and created new communities which, didn't, which were under stress. And, um, and the, the, I just need to explain something here. So most people here sitting here, you know, interested in the book, you're interested in your lifespan, how long you are going to live. When I talked earlier about the gap, I was talking about life expectancy. Yeah. So life expectancy is an average. So when you say, and it's an average of the whole community, and it's biased by how many years of life are lost or gained. And um, so the life expectancy, so you tend to think, for example, in Australia, that the life expectancy gap is created by 65-year-old Aboriginal people not living to 80. That's not what creates the gap. Because harsh though it might be to say it, you don't you lose enough years of life at that age and they don't lose that many actually at that age, because once you've got to 65, you're doing pretty well, it doesn't affect life expectancy that much. The reason life expectancy goes down is that young people and middle-aged people die yeah. and lose enormous years of life. And that's what happened in Glasgow. And people started dying of despair, um, violence, self-harm, drug and alcohol, um, premature death from coronary heart disease at a young age. These are kind of Livingston and uh, the, the, all those towns they built yeah, between. Deniston and um, yeah. a place called Castle Milk, which with Glaswegian humour they called Chateau Olay. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's right. You, you would remember them well. Uh, you know, Paisley was interesting because it was much more integrated and housing was much more integrated so this this is what had this is what had the impact it was so you know we talk about things that have an influence on living longer we're already living younger longer it's our culture it's the way we live it's government policy um, all those things have enormous reverberant impact on how well we live into older ages mm. And, and I've got... So I jumped from personal no, story no, to... No, no, you, but, but you, I, I, I want to just come back to you just for a little bit more because I, I was curious to hear, read that you had spent time in the Citizen Theatre because um, I was a, a very miserable young man sent off to boarding school and I had a year off from boarding school and went to a, a college at Lang Bank for a while and I bought a subscription to the Citizen Theatre in 1967 and saw... Brecht and uh, Arthur Miller and all those places. Because there was two theatres, wasn't there? There was a downstairs theatre and upstairs. There was the, there was the theatre club, That's it, which that, I was a member of. And I, we I mean, probably uh, sat next to each uh, other. At the know? age of 15, I went to see a nude production of Marat Saad. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. And, uh, but then in the upstairs theatre, I had a life-changing experience. Um, and I'd go by myself. I grew up in a house that was not anti-intellectual, but unusual for a Jewish household. But, you know, there, there weren't very many books. Um, I was one who bought the newspapers. If I was listening to Radio 4, which, you know, Radio National, I was told to turn it down. It was just noise. And um, the... Uh, so, but I went to the theatre by myself. And I was sitting there, and I went with... They put on... So the Glasgow Citizens Theatre was, was considered the world's best exponents of uh, Brecht outside the Berliner Ensemble 
ensemble in East Berlin. And they also did a lot of Ibsen. And in this occasion, they, they put on Ibsen's last play. Now, nobody ever puts on Ibsen's last play. It's a miserable, long play. But it changed my life. Um, and it, the, the, um, I've actually never gone back and reread the play because my memory is probably more important. Than, I don't want to be disappointed what's in the play. So here's, here's my memory and what it changed. So the, 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 it's set in a mountain resort, and there's this elderly writer, obviously Ibsen in his late years, is, and there's a mysterious character who comes in and takes him on a hike, a climb up the mountain. And at one point, um, the Ibsen character says to the mysterious character, well, where are we going? And the guy says, well, to the top of the mountain. And he says, well, why are we going to the top of the mountain? So we can see the view. And Ibsen says, um, well, what will I see in the view? And it's a, the mysterious character says, we will be able to see your life. And what will I discover? That you never lived. Now, they say to, um, you know, they say, you know, Fiona, as a former GP, would you know, say to parents of young children, don't let them take alcohol or drugs when they're young because it's going to change their brain and forever, blah, blah, blah. Don't let your children see Ibsen's last play because <laughs> it changes your brain forever. So I, what the, this crashing moment for me was I couldn't think of anything worse to happen in my life than regret and to get to the age that this elderly writer was and look back on my life and wish I'd done something else. That was the worst thing I could imagine. And it presumably kind of touched you more specifically than it might have other people because you were already into climbing mountains in Scotland. Yes. And there is that experience that one gets on the top of, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone's actually ever done any kind of medical analysis of what it is that happens to the body. But when you, when you climb 3,000 feet up a Scottish mountain and then you stop at the top, something extraordinary happens other than just the view and whatever it is. So this, this Edinburgh psychiatrist actually wrote this up in a slightly different way. So any mountain over 3,000 feet in Australia, in, in Scotland, is called a Monroe. And there's this thing amongst climbers that you've got to bag all the Monroes in Scotland. And 47? I can't remember. Because, like because they keep on reclassifying. Okay. <laughs> and... So the title of this was Chronic Monrosis <laughs> and describes the typical male climber who obsesses, like you would do four mountains in a day to just throw you to bagging the Monroes and they would tick them off. And, and then it would only, the Chronic Monrosis would only remit when you'd climbed all the Monroes of Scotland until somebody reclassified one as a Monroe and then all the symptoms came back. But what you're describing is this surreal experience which um, of silence apart from the wind and the sleet and the snow, but really the surreal silence and this at-oneness with the, you know, it's, it's trite, almost cliched to say it, but it's true. You, you've exerted yourself hugely to get to the top of this. You've scrambled away. You haven't really risked very much because most Scottish hills you can climb without nearly killing yourself, although I did nearly kill myself once. Um, and the, uh, and the achievement, and just, you do get this view which gives you personal contemplation. So, you know, you almost killed yourself on a mountain? It sounds like an invitation to... Uh... Um, well, th this was a farewell climb before I went to Australia, ostensibly only for a year. So with 
two of the guys I would go climb with. Women tend it tends to be a male thing. Um, the women maybe they don't get invited. I don't know, but the of uh, lots of women I know like like climbing and like doing that stuff. But we tend to, anyway. We were doing this farewell climb. And we were doing it on the island of Skye, and on the island of Skye, there's a huge and incredibly impressive mountain ridge called the Coolins. And hugely impressive, just excuse me interrupting for a second, but the Coolins, they've never attracted me to climb because they're as ugly as hell. You know, they are, they're, they're like something, so? they're just, I mean... They're, other, black, they're black and granite. And they're black and granite. I mean, there is not even any heather on them. They're just, I mean, they're so stark, they are just rock. You well, know? they're scary. I, I, I rather than ugly, I would say they're scary. Okay, okay, sorry. Okay. They're, 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 they you, are, they're, they're terrifying. You look at terrifying. Them, they're scary. Um, anyway, there's this mountain, which is really spectacular, called Skurnagillion. And it's got a, a pinnacle ridge, and then from the pinnacles you go up to the top. Now, there's two ways to get up Skurnagillion. One is what's called the tourist route, which is you can walk up and um, without too much trouble. There's a little bit of trouble, business at the end. And then there's the Pinnacle Ridge. And of course, my friends decided we, would, we had to do the Pinnacle Ridge. And the Pinnacle Ridge, if you read the mountain guides, you've actually got to watch, if they say this is an interesting climb, it means <laughs> that you wear bicycle clips, brown trousers, you know. And, and there's this thing where actually on Scottish mountains, sometimes you should use ropes, but you don't, because you only scramble, you only scramble. And so it was a difficult scramble on a November day, and I can't remember, I think there's three, there's three pinnacles before you get to the top. And it took us forever. And it was probably about three o'clock in the afternoon. So the thing about the Pinnacle Ridge is the only way down from the third pinnacle is to abseil. There's no walking down. And um, so we had a bag full of ropes. And by three o'clock, remember this is Scotland, it starts to get dark quite soon. And the wind was blowing and it was starting to sleet and rain almost horizontally. And we get to the top of the Pinnacle Ridge and you assume there's a nice rock which you tie the rope around to do your abseiling. There was none, there wasn't anything. We couldn't see what it was, where it was, where you tie the rock on. And we didn't bring the book with us, but we couldn't remember, the book assumed it was obvious where you put the rope to abseil. Um, and we, one of us, not me, put the, book, the rucksack down with the ropes in it and it blows off. <laughs> And like many Scottish mountains, there's one side that looks okay, and then there's other side which goes like that. And that this is, a, and it had lodged about 15 feet down on an almost sheer slope. And the, the, the third person on the trip, who's quite tall, uh, he actually became a professor at Glasgow University. He um, he went down without ropes on a pretty sh sheer slope to pick up the rucksack and saved our lives. But then we had to find we found this little kind of bump where you tie it, this was the only possible thing you could put the rope around. And they knew that I was the biggest fearty. I was the coward. And if I had to go down first, because if they left me behind, I'd die on the top <laughs> rather than go down. <laughs> it's a bit like bowel cancer screening. People won't have their bowel cancer, put their finger in their poo because they'd rather die of bowel cancer. Anyway. <laughs> um, so they throw the rope down. And, and it goes into a rather deep gully before you go up the next, really, the ascent to the top. And the rope got caught. The end of the rope got caught in a rock over there. So it was in a loop. And I said to them, what are we going to do? And I said, oh, it's okay. You get down to the bottom and just pull it. It will come away. <laughs> and I looked at them and I knew they were lying. <laughs> you know, they didn't know that was going to happen. But there was no choice. It was getting dark. 
we had to move. So I got out to the bottom of the loop and give it a tug and nothing happened. And I said, what will I do now? <laughs> and they said, just give it a harder tug. So I give it a harder tug. I said, it's not happening. He said, just really. So I really give it this huge tug. Remember, you're abseiling, you're like that. And I give this huge tug and it came away and I'm looking up at the rope, just kind of daydreaming as it hits me full in the face, <laughs> knocks off my glasses. And I take my hand off the rope to catch my glasses, forgetting that I'm abseiling and start to fall. And then, obviously, I'm here to tell the tale. But anyway, we, we, we get, get up to the top and get back, and we have to go back in the dark. We have to find our way across a river, and, and we get back to the car. And we're actually shaking. We were really, it was, we're shaking. And we go to the nearest pub in a place called Sligachan and have some very stiff uh, malt whiskeys. And we start rereading the book, the, the guide. And the guide said, Interesting though the climb is up the Pinnacle Ridge, never come off this mountain in the dark. Because <laughs> more people have been lost on the bog than on the mountain. <laughs> so look, let's go back to, to what you were talking about before about, about life expectancy, okay? Because I mean, a lot of, um, it's very hard to read this book that you've got here and not take it personally, right? It, it, you reading, uh, I'm reading this book. And, That's and, the intent. Well, yeah, you know, but it's also about... A I was lot writing of, for you, Stephen. Oh, but thank you. It, it, it says that in the front, doesn't it, for Stephen? Now, um, uh, it, but it's actually a book about kind of... It, there is a lot about, uh, as you said about Glasgow, about kind of the social structures that allow us to, to live longer. But life expectancy itself was a very kind of confusing topic because we think well okay back in the 1700s life expectancy was 35 but now it's 85 and the reason is because most children die between one and five or something like that but you ask you you, you drill down to those figures much more clearly and what what struck me very interesting was this thing about how the life expectancy of somebody who was 50 years old when i was born and the life expectancy of 50, someone who was 50 years, you know, 50 years later, the life expectancy had changed quite dramatically, probably added on 20 years. Is that right? Well, the, the statistic, the reason life expectancy, life expectancy has been going up. Remember, this is not lifespan, because each of us have our own stories and how long we will live. This is the average. Life expectancy went up in the, in the 19th century because women survived childbirth. Babies survived childbirth. Immunization allowed babies to be children and children to become adults, and that extended lifespan. The statistic that did not change from 1890 to 1950 was when you were 50, your chances of getting to 70. They did not change you know, through two world wars. What has happened in our lifetimes is life expectancy at 50 expanding. And in fact, we've maxed out a life expectancy at 50, and now it's life expectancy at 75. So, so what, what does that mean? Sorry. So, so that means that um, you're... Just, just for all the 75-year-olds in the room. So, <laughs> so we're doing really well. So it's like life expectancy at birth. We're doing pretty well in Australia with life expectancy at birth. There's probably not that much more to be gained by... You, know, you can always do better with childbirth and, and ch childhood diseases and so on. But we're doing pretty well by international standards. So the gains that we're going to get through that are in the bank. Um, the gains from immunisation are in the bank. But uh, and in, in, w the things that we did at age 50, and I'll come back to that in a moment, after World War II, 
are in the bank. So they allow 50-year-olds to get to 70 and 80 years of age. So now the, the, the things that got you there are in the bank. So now it's stuff that's happening at 75 that's allowing you to get to 95 or even 105. Yeah. And that's, so you're, you're, it's a good news story is essentially, it sounds like a bad news story, but it's such a good news story. You've done as well as you can, now it's the next bit. And so in fact, without us really thinking about it too much, we're already living younger, longer. So an 80-year-old today, their chances of dying, um, and I realize there's nobody 80 in the audience here, so room full of 30-year-olds, so great. Um, so go with me on this. Um, if you're 80 years old today, your chances of dying in the next 12 months are the same as a 60-year-old 50 years ago. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, there's, um, there are, and some are out with, so for example, it's very hard to find an 80-year-old who smokes, it's very hard to find a 50-year-old that smokes. We've got very low smoking rates in Australia. Smoking is a very potent pro-aging factor. When you yeah. smoke, it doesn't just increase your risk of heart disease and cancer, it increases your risk of oxidative stress and cellular aging. You age faster when you smoke. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that we, uh, since World War II, people have completed high school to a much greater extent and completed further education. So they've gone on to college or uh, further education college or university. The longer you go on in education, the longer you live. And the later you get dementia, the later you get coronary heart disease, the later you get cancer. Education is a potent life extender in, you, uh, 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 in younger form. Why is that? A lot of different reasons. Um, one is that you're more in control of your life. You've got more choices in your life. You've usually got more money in your pocket. Uh, you probably live in better housing. There's all sorts of things that happen as a result of education, which make a big difference. And this control over your life is something I talk about a lot in the book because we tend to forget that our brain runs everything. It just, you know, there are closed loops inside the body, you know, spinal cord and various other things, but by and large, the brain runs everything. And the brain is designed to detect stuff in the environment. And some of that stuff is physical. It's the air that we breathe. It's the food that we eat. Um, but it's also about the relationships that we have and, uh, or the relationships we don't have. And that gets translated by the brain. The brain hears, sees, feels, all that, including our relationships, and translates it into physical messages in our body. Not namby-pamby little thingy-majiggeries, it's physical messages into our body. And one of the most toxic things that can happen in our environment is that we lose our sense, our personal sense of control. Um, and this brings me back to Aboriginal communities who acknowledge country quite appropriately, is that and the Aboriginal people get this. And older people get it too. People go through lives, they intuitively know what we're talking about here. So if, for those of you who've done psychology and about to fail the exam, it's locus of control. Now, locus of control is um, how much agency do you feel you have over your life? How much pressure do you feel that you've got to make decisions that you don't want to make? And it's best, best studied by people like Sir Michael Marmot in London, an expatriate Australian, and the late Bruce McEwen at Rockefeller University in New York. Um, and what that creates, so if you feel out of control of your life, crap boss, crap job, single parent with three kids on a pension, your locus of control is over here. 
Yeah. Fiona would have seen people like this all the time in general practice and knew that was the problem there. And, what, and a healthy situation is, I feel it here. And sometimes it changes during life. You have a bad year in your life and it moves over here. That creates chronic stress. Bruce McEwen called it allostatic load, but it's chronic stress. And that chronic stress is pro-aging. It affects every system in your body because your brain translates it into physical messages. So control becomes really important. And education gives you some control over your life. And then finally, how, not finally, um, so, but, so 80-year-olds are arriving as 80-year-olds in a younger body. So what we're talking about here, living younger, longer, is that your chassis is different from the age of the, the, the age. So it's like buying a 10-year-old car, but it's only been driven to the shops twice a week. You don't get to 80 by driving to the shops twice a week, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. The, um, you're, you're in a younger body. And it's also what GPs are doing. So G, for, for most of human history, what doctors have done have either made things worse or not made much difference at all. And, but since World War II, and probably since the 70s really, it, what GPs do has made a difference. A big difference. So what interventional cardiology, people say, well, coronary heart disease deaths and stroke have diminished by 2% per annum for about 30 years. It's tailing off a bit. But so 60% fewer people are dying age adjusted today of heart attacks and strokes. I mean, this is, these are the things that are allowing us to live longer. Um, so you know, you, we, all, we all think of hospitals, things that are shining, things that go ping. Um, but, in, but in fact, interventional cardiology is probably making 10 or 15% difference to that. And that's only quite recently. Yeah. The gains have been doctors recognizing when you've got high blood pressure. That's the next most toxic thing in terms of aging. Uh, they recognize when you've got high cholesterol and they're treating it. And that is reducing your risk and reducing your aging, the aging of your blood vessels. If your blood vessels age, your brain's going to age, your heart's going to age, the rest of your body's going to age. So it's probably time to talk a little bit about homeostasis because that's something that you kind of put fundamental to this whole process, isn't it? It is. Um, and it's something that ageing researchers don't talk about a lot. And they've taken issue with me about it, but in fact there's some really interesting research. So the body works on balance. Yeah. If your blood pressure goes up, there's a system to bring it down. If your hormones go up, there's a system to bring them back into line. Um, if you get acute stress and you get an adrenaline response, there's another entirely separate, uh, s a separate system called the parasympathetic system, which brings you back to uh, your even balance. And it happens inside cells too. So you get pro-aging things happening like oxidative stress, and that's presented as bad. But the reality is we do a deal with the devil to be alive. We breathe in oxygen, and oxygen, when it's metabolized, rusts things. It rusts metal in the outside environment. It rusts our body from the inside. It's inevitable. But things speed it up, like smoking, blood pressure, and bad diet, and so on, a lack of exercise. All these things speed these things up. And, um, and so you've got... But in fact, it's a normal thing to get oxidative stress inside your cells because it shows that you're metabolizing oxygen. If you have a lot of exercise, you will have... Ex but your body's got a balance system to bring it back. And the metaphor that I use is the Tower of Pisa. Imagine the Tower of Pisa, fresh after it's built, straight up and down the line. And you know, it balances in the wind and so on, and straight up and down. And imagine that's the balance, the comple these complex sets of balances in the body which, by the way, are influenced by the brain, but we'll come back to that. And then 
that the, the Tower of Pisa gets battered by life. It gets battered by chronic stress. It gets battered just by living through the years. It gets battered by smoking, whatever else, and it starts to lean. And that lean is towards aging. It's a kind of aging lean. But what happens there is that, so what I'm trying to explain here, I should have just explained before, is that there are lots of anti-aging products on the market. Forget vitamins, they don't work. Um, they really don't. Uh, for various reasons, which I'll come back to in a moment. Um, but there are anti-aging compounds which should work. Some of you have read maybe David Sinclair's work on resveratrol with, you know, from red wine. Um, there's an anti-diabetic drug called metformin. There's a drug called rapamycin. There's uh, um, NAD boosters, all sorts of things. There's people saying you should go off to Germany and get stem cell transplants because it's all, you know, you need young stem cells. Some people say you should go and get a young blood transfusion. All of these things should work, but in fact, they don't. And for various reasons. And one of the reasons is this balance. Well, two or three reasons. One is this balance is very complicated. When you give, the reason they should work is when you give them to a mouse, the mouse lives 20 or 30% longer in good health. But when you give them to humans, they don't seem to work. And it's this balance thing. Because if you go and have an NAD booster infusion, you're getting this massive dose of this substance, and we don't understand the right dose. And some of these substances, like vitamin C, for example, work differently at different doses. So vitamin C at low dose in food is an antioxidant. Vitamin C in high dose as a supplement, there is evidence that it's a pro-oxidant. It speeds up aging. And we don't know the right thing. So when you go and get a massive dose of one of these NAD boosters, the body might go in a youthful direction for a week or two, and then it says, stuff this, I don't like being pushed in this direction, and pushes back. So it just keeps on going back into that angle. So, so what you're saying is that the kind of homeostasis shifts as you get older, instead of, instead of being straight up and down, youthful. youthful, as you got older, it started to tilt and the body is correcting to the tilt. Correct. So even if you bring, if you try and bring the body back up, it keeps on coming back. And that's, now one day they might find that what you've got to do is give these in tiny doses, in combinations, maybe once a fortnight or something, but they don't know yet. But I mean, yeah. it's just that they're doing, doing it wrong. The stem cell story is fascinating. Um, it should work giving young stem cells to But what happens when you give young stem cells, because stem cells is where our tissue is generated from. And, but what happens when you give young stem cells to older people or older animals, they age. The, st the stem cells Stem age. cells become old stem cells. And then there's this story of the young blood transfusion, getting a blood transfusion from a young person and old. And there is evidence that that seems to correct some of the aging, cellular aging that's going on. So what's going on? Now, what, what they, the fascinating experiment which I describe in the book is that they attach the blood supply of an old mouse to a young mouse with the hypothesis that is that... So do you remember the, the film When Harry Met Sally and she has, fakes an orgasm in the cafe and the woman over there says, oh, I'll have what she's having? Um, and there's been this thing for centuries, if not thousands of years. There's something about young people. They've got this essence of youth. And if only we could get this elixir of youth. We're obsessed with this elixir of youth. So the hypothesis was the young mouse would rejuvenate the old mouse. The old mouse claps out the young mouse. <laughs> and 
and there are lots of reasons for that, but one of the things that's going on is that when you're, you know, when it's the, the leaning, trapeze is not leaning and everything's going well, our cells turn over in a very healthy way. They're born from stem cells, they do their job, wherever that, whatever that job is in their body, they die, and the body gets rid of the dead cells and new cells are born. So there's this cell cycle. As you get older, the cell cycle starts to fail and the cells don't die properly. And they hang around like grumpy old neighbours who call the cops you know, at 10 past 10 if you're still making a noise you know, at the party, your kid's party. Um, and they exude bad stuff from them. And, that's, and, and so you've got these cells. Now, it happens in cancer, by the way. So difficult to treat cancers like pancreas cancer yeah. are surrounded by these grumpy cells which keep the chemotherapy out. Um, and if we can find a way to get rid of those, and these are called senolytics, and are, you know, they are trying to develop those, there'll be anti, anti-cancer agents as well as anti-aging agents. But at the moment, we don't have them. Now, what happens with the blood, young blood? A couple of, one research group said, well, what's in, it in the blood? Is there anything in the blood? And they tried just giving a saline and albumin infusion, in other words, water, and it worked. Because all that's happening is you're diluting the toxic, the toxic stuff, I'm calling it toxic stuff, in the blood and, and actually allowing the normal cells to rejuvenate. And you know, some people are trying for Alzheimer's disease to use something called plasmapheresis, which gets rid of some of these substances from the body, which is hugely expensive. You could never do it on a mass scale, and it's also got risks attached to it. But there's something going on there. I mean, it's really exciting research. But all these things, all these substances, I mean, there's a fascinating story about rapamycin, which was one of the first anti-aging compounds. Would you talk about it, about it coming from Easter Island and where, where it came from and, and, and all those Correct. things? Yeah. But, but I'd like to move you on just a, a, little, a little bit for a moment because in the book here you go through, there's, a, there's about 30 or 40 pages in the middle of the book that are, are really quite technical where you're talking about mTOR and mTOR C1 and mTOR C2 and everything like that. And I don't claim to be across that at all. But it's all about the research into what makes us on a cellular level, on a mitochondrial level, and what's actually happening there to make these things go. But this research is all based, um, I mean, what they've done is they've looked at sociology across the world, demography across the world, and they found that there are certain people in the world who live longer than each other, and like the Greeks or the Sardinians or the Japanese in various different parts. And, And what they're trying to do is use various different pills, chemicals, whatever, to try and emulate Correct. whatever it is that they're doing, right? That's what these pills try and do. Yeah. But what those people are doing is something that, what you say in the book is that people could be doing anyway. They are. It used to be said that to live to a ripe old age, you had to have parents and grandparents to live to a ripe old age, which is great. You, you, you likely will live to a ripe old age. But the research... Years ago, it used to get to 100 was a genetic abnormality. Yeah. A nice genetic abnormality, but a genetic abnormality. Um, it turns out, so genes do matter, but um, the, the longevity genes, whatever they are, nobody's sure exactly what they are, kick in at the extreme of old age. So for centuries, they would kick in in your 80s and 90s, and then your 90s and your 100s. Now they kick in at 105 and 110. So it's an extreme of old age. So people are now getting into their late 90s and their 100s without necessarily longevity genes. 
they're they're getting there because of the way they live, the sort of things that we've been that we've been talking about. And then, so the Sardinians and the Japanese, it's partly genes, but it's also um, it's also lifestyle. They've done fascinating studies of migration. So Japanese migrating from um, Japan to Honolulu and Honolulu to the west coast of the United States. They actually live longer in Honolulu and the west coast of the United States than they do in Japan. So there's so some genes, but it's also lifestyle. So the second longest lived people in the world are actually older Greek Australians, best studied in Melbourne. And the... Um, and Tanya Thodas and, um, and Catherine Itziopoulos at Deakin University have studied this in depth. And before her, um, the late John Powell, who then to, went to work at the University of Cambridge, um, he looked at uh, people who came to Melbourne from Lefkada, the Greek island. So when you say this, that uh, Greek Australians live a long time, um, people say, oh, it's the Mediterranean diet. <clears throat> now, the Mediterranean diet is part of the story, but... If you think about the Mediterranean diet, we, we generalise too much about it because all these countries around the Mediterranean, they all eat in a different way. People say, what's well, the Italians? Well, you know, I don't know when last time anybody went to Italy, but they're eating prosciutto by the tonne, red meat in their pasta and so on. <coughs> it's not necessarily that healthy a diet. It's the Greek island diet that's been best studied, particularly yeah. the island on Crete. And so, sure, and we tend to talk about it in particular form. So we talk about... Um, uh, not much red meat, you know, protein from fish, legumes, and so on. In fact, the Southeast Asian diet is very similar to the Mediterranean diet in its overall composition. But actually, what really makes the difference is the cuisine and how you cook. And any chef will tell you that cooking is chemistry. And what happens in the pot is truly miraculous. So when you put... So if you choose not to eat processed food and you eat a raw tomato, great. If you chop that raw tomato... It's actually even better for you because that starts to release strong, powerful, I call them bioactive compounds rather than antioxidants because they help your cells communicate with each other and, and do the sort of things that we've been talking about as well as if you add olive oil to that, even without cooking, even better. But when you cook extra virgin olive oil, chopped onions, tomato, maybe carrots, um, garlic, herbs in the same pot, you get bioactive compounds that you could not dream of buying over the counter in the pharmacy. They, have, they act on your body itself and they act on your microbiome to make the microbiome more youthful and produce compounds that actually you know, slow down aging. And here's one of the problems that gets compounded as we get older. As we get older, we might lose friends, so we lose social contact. In other words, we're lonely. The brain picks that up and picks it up as a stressful impulse and acts on the body to, you know, act, has sends physical messages to the body which are pro-aging. You can't be bothered cooking for yourself. So you have a cheese sandwich at night instead of cooking for yourself. So you eat this monotonous diet and then your microbiome becomes monotonous and pro-aging. So these things compound each other. So they cook. They cook at a moderate heat because when you burn your food on a, on, say, a barbecue, um, that burnt bit has pro-aging compounds in it. They're called advanced glycation end products. So they're pro-oxidants. So they cook at a moderate heat. They, they grow their own vegetables and herbs. So they've got a backyard, so they're getting exercise. Or in the, in the uh, context of Melbourne, they have an allotment. 
and when they shop, they are really particular at shopping. You know, there's the suburb, in, and Vietnamese Australians are the same. If you go to, if you're, if, you're, if you've ever got a loose end on a Sunday in Sydney, go out to Cabramatta, because it's actually just a train ride to Vietnam. It's, it's just turned into Vietnam. It's amazing. And just watch elderly Vietnamese shopping for fruit and vegetables. It'd be a nightmare being a greengrocer because they are so particular at being fresh. Now, freshness is almost certainly more important than being organic. They eat with family and friends. So there's a social context around it. And then they still belong to the Greek Orthodox Church. And the Greek Orthodox Church has 100 fast days a year. Now, these are not Michael Mosley fasts. These, you're not allowed to eat protein. You're not allowed to eat protein from animals. So you're, you don't eat dairy. You're still, you're still allowed to eat vegetables. But you're allowed to eat vegetables. So it's like a vegan day. So it's intermittent frugality rather than intermittent fasting. And it's that bundle of stuff that seems to make a difference. And it's not stuff that, you know, we, you, don't, you don't have to join the Greek Orthodox Church or have a wood-fired, slow-burning oven in your garage, which if you go to Coburg and Melbourne, every second garage has got a wood-fired oven in it um, for a 12-hour lamb. It's, you know, I'm sorry, you haven't eaten, have you? <laughs> but so, I mean, one of the things you, you brought in there was that thing about exercise as well, because having a vegetable garden means that you're out there digging the soil, you're doing whatever it is. Uh, one of the things that I've, loved in the book was your discussion about METS, uh, METS, I think you call them about exercise. Do you, could you elaborate on that for a minute? So these are metabolic equivalents. Um, so it allows you to compare intensity of exercise. And, um, and, and you want to be burning as many METS per hour as, as you can. So it's just a way of measuring intensity of exercise. So I, I've, I, can't, I can't remember exactly what it is, but you know, a slow walk where you're chatting with your friends is maybe two or three minutes. Uh, oh, sorry, I meant you could describe is that um, generally speaking, if we're sitting here, we're using one one, one, ca one calorie per kilo weight, per, per kilo of my body, one calorie. So I'm 80 kilos, so I'm burning 80 calories an hour just sitting here. Yeah, I'm burning more because you're interrogating me, but yes. <laughs> Um, but you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, so, no. so that's one met, yeah. That's right. So uh, jogging at a reasonable rate might be six mets. Um, more intense exercise might be eight mets. And it just gives you an idea. And you can translate the 45 minutes that you're supposed to do on most days of the week to mets, metabolic equivalents. And the more metabolic equivalents you burn, the better. And, the, um, and so I talk about that in the book and give you, give you a scale. And the idea here is that if you're not doing any exercise at all, and you get up and do some, it's great. It's really terrific. But if you really want the benefit, and there's multiple benefits here, and it comes back to th these drugs and what works, is you actually want moderately intense exercise. You want to be actually be pushing yourself so you're breathless. If you can go for a walk, having a chat, and complain about why your kids never phone you, yeah. <clears throat> then you're not exercising intensely enough. And it's got to be progressive. Once you get fitter, you've got to push it harder either do a longer walk or do the same walk or jog in a, in a shorter period of time. Now what, so that's good in itself. It makes you more cardiorespiratory fit. You've got to strengthen your muscles because you do not want to get to old age with weak muscles. That speeds up frailty and it speeds the path to death. 
Um, and as you get older, you get this thing called sarcopenia where your muscles waste away. So part of your exercise has got to be muscle strengthening. Um, but if you look at what actually... So, and also intense exercise starts to get rid of these senile cells in your body as well. So there's lots of things that happen with exercise. But these anti-aging preparations, which is what you were alluding to earlier, they're all trying to do the same thing. Yeah. They're emulating what's known to work in staying younger longer. And what's known to work is either called dietary restriction or calorie restriction. Essentially, if you see dietary restriction, people really mean calorie restriction. So that's what Michael Mosley's on about with 5-2 or time-restricted eating and so on. But there's a problem. If you just focus on the diet end of that, um, there's two problems. And, and Michael Mosley, Michael focused on the work of Luigi Fontana um, in the, his first book with the 5-2. And Luigi's now a professor at Sydney University. And it was his work on this that Michael picked up on and some others. Now, what's missing... I'm not sure it's missing from Michael's books, but it's missing from most of our understand, most people's understanding of the 5-2. Most people think you can do anything you like on the five days, as long as you have the two days of 500 calories a day and, what, and stress your body. That's what everybody focuses on is those two days. Luigi's point is you can't ignore the five days because you can actually become relatively malnourished on those five days if you're not careful, if you eat a crap diet. So you've got to eat a very high-quality diet that's not too excessive in calories on those five days. And then the other problem is, comes back to that, how the body gets used to a new set point, is that when you reduce your calories, the calorie burn sitting here might be less than a calorie per kilo. It might go down to 0.9 of a calorie per kilo because your body gets used to a lower metabolic rate. <clears throat> so the calorie burn becomes low, less um, and sorry, the calorie burn, so you're using up fewer calories and you, just by living. And therefore, the gap, the calorie gap, lowers and can actually come back to almost zero, even on a 5-2. And you're losing the benefit of the lower calories. So what you've got to add to that is exercise. Because exercise gives you that burn, which creates the calorie gap. And in fact, Luigi is much more in favor of the Greek thing, intermittent frugality, than intermittent fasting. Because it, 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 it doesn't allow the body to get into a new balance that's too extreme and allows you to rock and roll a bit. Yeah. Now, uh, I'm, as I said, I'm kind of conscious of the time because we're going to want to go over questions, but I, I, I want to, um, to, bring you, to bring you back just to where we almost started. Mostly boring, and I'm having to, with the alarm is waking somebody up. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, bring you back to almost where we started with the Glasgow effect and things like that, because where you kind of end up with the book is just with this notion that all of this stuff that we're doing, none of it counts for anything if there's no, um, if there's nothing, no, if the environment is destroyed that we're living in. Yeah, yeah, we're we're in an existential crisis, which I find. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I well, wasn't didn't surprise me, but is how quickly we responded to the crisis with COVID. Well, the community did. The federal government took a while, but the. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that, it just winds me up. Um, the, uh, but when we've got a crisis, we respond very quickly. We're tuned to, we're, that's what we're tuned to do. We're, we've evolved to respond to crisis very quickly and adapt, you know, the, the tiger and the grass or, or what have you. 
but we are very bad at responding to slow-moving disasters. We're just not built for that psychologically. And what we've got now is you know, warnings that have gone on for 50, 60 years about the changing environment. Partly scientists are to blame that they've, not, they've been too honest about the uncertainties around the thing. So that's been exploited by the fossil fuel industry and with governments who don't want to do anything and by the conservatives who don't want change and don't see their, their life changing. But we're now rapidly heading to the point of no return, where we're, we're the, the tipping point. So w when the tundra melts in Siberia, as it's beginning to do, that's releasing methane. Yeah. And compared to carbon dioxide, methane is really toxic to, the, to global warming. And you, you're seeing now this massive ice sheet in Antarctica, which they thought was stable. And when, if that comes off, and when the Greenland ice sheet comes off, we're talking about many feet of, of, of sea rise. Yeah. We're already seeing droughts. These are, this is an existential crisis. And we've only got a few years to fix this up. Yeah. And we still, you know, anyway. So yeah, I didn't. I didn't mean to kind of to to end my part of the conversation here on such a donor, but I think it's really important to to recognise that we we. I mean, we had um, we've had some very good climate scientists here talking quite recently ab about this, but it's something and that the, we just need to we just yeah. need to keep working on the, it. The great thing here is the community is ahead of government, and uh, yeah. you know you've got land care, you've got community organisations doing things. Um, people thinking about insulating their houses. You know, the, the community is well ahead of government. My son, who's a journalist in um, America, interviewed Andrew Cuomo, uh, the then, who was then still governor of New York. And he asked a question towards the end, which was, what does it take to lead Americans? What sort of leadership? Because you know, before he was caught out, he was a contender for the Democratic nomination. And his answer was fascinating. It was... Um, politicians in America can't lead. We have to follow. Um, and I believe that's where, where politicians feel they are now in both, on both sides of, of parliament. They, do, they don't feel able, able to stand up and lead, um, even though they know what needs to be done. And we need people to stand up and lead and take risks. And, um, you know, you've got, you've just, you know, we're just compromising all the time. Yeah. Okay, so look, let's let's go over to the audience for a while because I'm sure there are lots and lots of questions here. Um, just to, to everybody here in the audience, uh, Tony has the mic, so if you put your hand up, she's going to go and find you and take a question for Norman. I mean, if you haven't got questions, I've got lots more for him. I just kind of assumed that the, all of you, you know, that, no? Oh, yes, there's one here. They're a bit shy, Norman, today. I don't believe a word of that. <laughs> um, hello, I've been um, following Dr. David Sinclair, and I just wanted to know what you think of what he is talking about and the fasting and um, living longer, younger. So David's an eminent researcher at Harvard and an expatriate Australian. And he takes resveratrol every day and he takes metformin, this anti-diabetic drug, and he has one meal a day in the evening. So he has essentially time-shifted thing. So the one thing that he's doing that he knows works 
because he's studied it and he's one of the pioneers of the cellular mechanism. He knows that taking one meal in the evening, restricting his diet, is going to work. Um, but he also believes that resveratrol and metformin work. When I looked at the data on that, and the data, there's just very poor quality data in humans that there's any evidence that they work. They should work. Metformin's probably got better evidence than resveratrol, but in people with diabetes. Uh, so if you've got diabetes and you take metformin, um, you seem to lose weight, you seem to have a much lower risk of cancer. If you get cancer, you seem to do better on the cancer. It seems to be an amazing drug. But even in people with diabetes, for a doctor to put you on metformin, you're not necessarily a typical person with diabetes. Your kidney function, for example, is going to be normal. Um, so the people in metformin are already not everybody. Um, but there is some evidence for metformin. I mean, I hope resveratrol works, but the current evidence is that it doesn't. And it's not very well absorbed. So I think David's working on absorbable um, forms of resveratrol. Um, so you're not going to do yourself any harm, but whether or not it's worth the effort, it is worth the effort to be careful of your calorie, calories in, calories out. That's what's able to do. And you're probably better not going to any extreme here and just being modest about how you do it so your body doesn't get used to a new set point and you're patient and you do exercise and you create that gap with the exercise. Lot, lots of hands. No, they, were no, See, they were just shy. They were just shy. Dr. Swan, I'd like to um, get your thoughts on the environmental toxins that we're facing in society now, particularly in um, developed and even in undeveloped countries where there's lots of industry, things like lead, um, mercury, cadmium, um, and aluminium as well, which is naturally found in, in soils and and through our food. Um, and there seems to be some research shows that our levels are really increasing in, in the general population. How we can possibly get rid of that out of our bodies? Is there any any research that you know of that shows a good way to detoxify from heavy metals. Oh, and also um, the amount of uh, nuclear detonations that we've had since um, the end of the Second World War, which is over 2,000. So, and that's strontium. Um, the, the environmental toxin that really speeds up aging um, are, is small particulates. There's nothing to do with heavy metals. It's fossil fuel burning, um, and that has no borders. So, for example, 11% of the small particulates, these are things that are 0.2 of a micron, so they get right inside your lungs, they get absorbed into your body, and they fire up oxidative stress, they fire up your immune system, because we didn't talk about that, they fire up inflammation, and inf this broad-based first reaction of your immune system is pro-aging, and small particulates are really toxic. They increase the rate of coronary heart disease, lung disease, probably cancers, um, and we have to get rid of those from the environment. And so the same solution for climate change will reduce these small particulates. It's worse from diesel. It varies according to where you live. So there's this gradient of inequity. We, you know, you've got the blessing to live in God's own country, with clean air. Uh, relatively speaking. But people who are most exposed to particulates are people who live usually in eastern suburbs, depending on the prevailing... West, eastern, uh, eastern suburbs, 
Um, but when in Sydney, it's the western suburbs. Um, and, but in Europe, it's often the east of the city. And they get trucks going by. They live near roads, poor housing, and get exposed to huge particulates. And it's one of the things that causes them to live young, shorter lives where they age prematurely. So small particulates gets me going much more than heavy metals. Lead is really bad for you. Um, which is why we've removed it from petrol. Lead is, you know, if you've got an old house and you're renovating, you've got to watch out for lead in, the, lead in, the, uh, in there. So things like cadmium and aluminium. So they've looked at aluminium and they're not, there's nothing convincing on aluminium. Um, they used to think that it caused Alzheimer's disease and dementia. When you look at the brains of people, which they've done, there's no more aluminium in the brains of people with dementia than there is with other people. So we are absorbing it. It's not a question that we're not absorbing these chemicals, but we are. Although the, there is a researcher, a really good researcher in Melbourne called Ashley Bush, who is, his fundamental research is into heavy metals in the brain and Alzheimer's disease. But in fact, it's iron that he's looking at. Um, and he <laughs> believes that there's a fundamental process that goes wrong in the brain. And iron is sucked out of the blood and deposited in the brain, and he's trying to find ways to remove that iron. So there are drugs which will remove heavy metals from your body, but they're not convincingly, they don't convincingly help Alzheimer's disease. And he's looking at why that is. So it's like another, yet another story. Medicine is, medical research is full of compounds that should work, but don't. And so he's trying to find out ways of doing that. So you're not on the wrong track. It's just that when you look at it, and you try and do something about it, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem that you're looking at. But people with very high occupational exposure to some of these uh, chemicals do, you know, do get problems. But really, we should be focusing on small particulates and not getting too distracted. Get, stop fossil fuel burning. Yeah. So the, the few, you're, Tony's following your hands around here. Hi, uh, thank you, Norman, for your talk tonight and your career overall. Uh, been a, a very sustaining for us all. Um, I want to ask a question about prolonged fasting, and I just want to, as a pr preliminary talk about Angus Barbieri, who, the boy from Scotland, who fasted for uh, 382 days as a medically supervised fast. I have read that a good week long fast every couple of or twice a year is a great um, senolytic, uh, for the want of a better word. Have you got any comment on that? Um, I think Luigi has looked at prolonged fasting and it, I think his concern is that he's worried about malnutrition and he's worried that you, um, the recovery phase, that if you're not nourishing yourself properly with a complex diet that you're not so I did a long interview with him actually which is on the health report website if you want to actually go to that and I think we did talk about that sort of thing the problem is um, we tend to think that if a little's good a lot is better and we've got really no idea what a prolonged fast is and they can be quite dangerous and so as you say a medical supervised fast where you're drinking you know you're getting enough fluid and so on and maybe even you're getting some supplements and what have you might be okay but it's not it's not sustainable We've got to we've got to um, we've got to find solutions which actually work in a sustainable way, and uh, even for the individuals, you might have this week-long fast. Then what do you do for the rest of your life? Um, 
you know, if you did it in Scotland, you go back to fried haggis and chips, you know, what is it you do? And the, the research in animals is not into prolonged fasts. It's into a set amount of calorie restriction, 10, 20, 30 percent, and what that does, and rather than the fast. So it's for the animal's life. So they try it at birth or when the animal's very young, and they try it when the animal might be middle-aged, and they find it's better starting younger. You want, you want to do this with children, but it still works in an animal's middle age and later life. Um, the problem that we've got with older Australians is they're often not eating well enough to start with. And if they start thinking that I've got to restrict my diet, is people lose weight as they get older. They lose muscle mass. You've just got to be really careful about what, what you do because you could make yourself worse. Um, Dr. Swan, I heard you on the radio a snippet of it talking from the ECA and you mentioned about how much water people should drink. Would you be able to elaborate on that? Yeah, that was after I said that it's okay to eat a Dagwood dog once a year. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're, not, you're not supporting our, our opposition leader, are you? No, it's just, <laughs> you know, the ECA is the ECA. What would the ECA be without a Dagwood dog? <laughs> Um, I, I couldn't stomach the strawberry sundae. Um, <laughs> so this is in this book, um, so you think you know what's good for you, rather than this one. Um, is, I, I was in this book, I explored a lot of myths, and um, I explored a lot of things, things that I hate. It was really a self-indulgent book, really, about things that I, you know, after reporting on health for all these years, what, what do I hate and what do I think are, is a bit silly and so on. So I, say, I talk about two words I hate, for example, resilience and wellness. Uh, uh, you know, why do I hate wellness? Well, I don't hate the word well-being. I think that's fine because that's a sense of well-being in the world. But wellness gives you, the industry gives you this idea that there's some God-given right to be jumping out of bed in the morning and if you're a bloke, you've got this washboard abdomen, unlike my Pinot Noir abdomen. Um, <laughs> wash your pearly white teeth and you're feeling great and if you're a woman you jump out of bed full of beans and you admire your thin hips and thin thighs and your perfect children come in and people think it's abnormal if you don't do that because that's the norm that you've been presented with so I mean I'm sure Fiona in her life as a general practitioner would have seen people who she thought were absolutely normal but they didn't achieve this expectation of perfection and my point in the book this one is how would you know if you're well if you don't feel crap most of the days? Because most of us get up in the morning and think, oh, God, you're feeling awful, blah, blah, blah. So we've got, you've got to have these rises and falls in your life. And, uh, and resilience I hate because it victimizes people. Because it makes you think that there are resilient people in this world and people who are weak. And that's not the way it works. We have resilient times in our life, and we have times in our life where we can't bounce back from adversity. And, and that's how we should view resilience. So coming to so the other thing is this water thing. So again, you, you know, I work in the ABC. Every second table, when pre-COVID, when there actually were people in the ABC, um, <laughs> the um, people with you know the flask of water and the drunk back, and being terrified, and you've got to drink three or four liters a day. If you don't, your kidneys will shut down, and your liver will shut down, and the world will come to an end. Missing the fact that we've got something called thirst. 
And it used to be advised to marathon runners that they should stop at every water station and drink water, otherwise they become dehydrated. And what they found was that the runners, time slowed. And in fact, some of them got quite sick towards the end because they were, had water toxicity. Ethiopian high mountain runners run at their best when they're 2% dehydrated. And in elite sport, coaches now tell their teams, only drink to thirst. Don't force yourself to drink a lot. Now, if it's good enough for the Broncos, it's good enough for the rest of us. Um, now, the exception to that rule is if you're becoming forgetful, you might forget to drink and become dehydrated. And in that situation, it's worth being, being reminded. But having a bottle by your side is not going to make a difference to that because you'll still forget to drink. If there's extreme heat, you know, some of us might go through a day where we forget to drink and we should be drinking more than we are and just be aware of that. But on average, when you're thirsty, have a drink. Now, we're, we're getting, we are starting to run a bit low on time. So I think, should we say just two more questions? Is that, is that all right? So we've got one just here. Thank you, Dr. Son. I'm a primary school teacher, and this term I'm teaching healthy eating to a bunch of year five students. And the materials I am provided to teach healthy eating to, it's no longer a food pyramid, but it is a food pie chart on which white carbs and red meat are very prominent features. Can you point to any other uh, empirical resources that I could be using to encourage children to adopt better Mediterranean-based diets? For I think you bring in a Greek nonna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pathetic sometimes, these health promotion materials. I mean, what kid's going to get that? You know, and kids are great. Young, young people are living much healthier lifestyles. They're not smoking much anymore. They're not using drugs. The biggest group who are a problem with alcohol are the over 55s in Australia. Kids are doing pretty well. You know, and they're, pretty well, they're doing pretty well going home and telling their parents what they need to cook. But you know, we overcomplicate it. We really do. Final question. Hello, Dr. Norman. It's not exactly a question. I'm a fellow Scot of a similar age who... Would you like me to do simultaneous translation? Or are you okay <laughs> well, I can talk in a Glaswegian accent if you really want me mm -hmm. to. But anyway, um, having lived in Scotland, um, everyone here will have heard of Margaret, Margaret Thatcher, who a lot of people don't like. But in the 1980s, I heard, she, well, she was a chemist and actually warned of global warming in the 1980s, as I'm sure probably perhaps other politicians did around the world. Um, I'm not sure, very few of them. I don't even really know what my question is here, but I was so pleased to hear that. And if something had been done that sort of 40 years ago, how do you think we would be placed now? So she was scientifically literate. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So despite all the incentive, she understood science. I don't think we've ever had a scientifically literate uh, prime minister. And Bar poor old Barry Jones in the Hawke government was just laughed at. He was laughed at and had no power within cabinet. Um, and actually, Kevin Rudd, love him, got rid of the prime minister's science and engineering advisory panel which was set up, you know, and John Howard kept it going. Keating started it off, John Howard kept it going, and Rudd got rid of it. Um, so we don't have scientific literacy there. So it's lawyers who tend to do well in governments. And that's part of the problem. So I think the reason that Germany is so prominent is you had Angela Merkel, who was also a scientist. Um, 
it's that literacy and understanding that and understanding the maths because when you get to that tipping point there's no coming back as everybody here knows but we get frustrated with trying to convince others look we we could take questions from you all night norman it's such a privilege to have you here in malaysia well, please, please put your hands together for norman's life Just, just before you run out of the door, I'm going to crave your indulgence for about two minutes more here. I'd just like to give some thanks. I'd like to thank um, uh, Jan and Jeff Cornfoot there at the back with Norman and Fiona's books. Um, Norman and Fiona will be going back there in a moment to sign copies of them. Please, um, please go. Don't, don't weigh the, lay them on the way, please. Just let them get there, and then you can talk to them. Um, Howie for lights and recording. We'll get the podcast up as soon as we can. Uh, Anne and Jill at the bar, thank you very much. Anne Koenig is just a, such a, a stalwart of this community. We don't know how we'd survive without her. All those people who helped me set up and help um, fee, uh, to, to get people in and out of the doors and clean up afterwards. Our next event will be in five weeks' time. Uh, that's with uh, Kate Hudson. Many of you will have seen the flyers that we put out on the chairs. But just please... Sorry, sorry my apologies. <laughs> Got, 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 got all, being almost famous on my mind here. You know? So, uh, Kate, Kate, um, Kate Holden. No. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Kate's book is just a remarkable book. It's, it's, it, it, I know it's a story about what happened at Cropper Creek late one winter afternoon in 2014, where an environmental officer gets killed by an 80 year old farmer. But she, that's just the kind of starting point for the book. It's a book that takes that as a place to delve into the very assumptions we have about our landscape, about our history, about Brigalow country and why it's important, about black soil plains, about almost anything you can imagine is kind of drawn into it. And Kate is just a marvelous speaker. Some of you will have seen her here before when she came with her partner, Tim Flannery, and we talked about her memoir, The Romantic. Um, she, uh, a columnist with the, um, uh, the, the Saturday Age. Anyway, she's going to be here with Katie McMahon on the, uh, on the 15th of September. Do come along. Uh, are you signed up to receive our emails? I do hope so. That's the way we do 90% of our publicity, um, and you, you miss out if you don't get them. Uh, finally, thank you to all of you for coming out once again to an outspoken event. We couldn't do these things without you. It's just marvelous to have such a, a supportive community. Put your hands together once again, please, for Fiona and Norman. <laughs>